Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're in this study of David, and we're going to start really today. Last time we looked at the life and legacy of David, kind of an overview, and, and looked at this idea of the heart. Um, this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at why David was needed and, and explore a little bit of the idea of why, why David. Um, so 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse 15, and we'll read over uh, to chapter 8, verse 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when, he said to, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you give clarity to our thoughts this morning, that you would just uh, guide in what's said, and, and that we may learn uh, from these experiences of, of your people Israel uh, years ago. So we pray for your meeting with us in Jesus' name. Amen. To understand why David was needed, you have to go back into Israel's history, and you can sum it up in two words. The first word's Israel, the second word is Saul. And uh, so we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to cover like seven or eight chapters. It won't be that way all the time. But, uh, so I'm going to have to kind of summarize uh, some things that um, are happening. Here in 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel come to Samuel. Sorry? Oh. Um, they come to, to Samuel and they ask uh, for a king. And they give several reasons uh, that, that um, they need, feel the need for a king. And these are from, from recent history. The first is they have some bad memories. If you were to go back into chapter uh, 5, 6, and 7, you would find that Israel's constantly uh, there up in the, the mountains. The Philistines have the plain uh, there's an area in between called the Shephelah, the, the low hills. And when Israel uh, was stronger, they would go into the Shephelah and use the valleys of the Shephelah to get better crops. When the Philistines were stronger, they would push Israel back up into the mountain. A lot of battles were fought in regard to that. And uh, there's a battle. 
And Israel loses 4,000 men. So they, what do we do? What do we do? Um, and so they go get the Ark of the Covenant with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they, they think that will give them victory because when the Ark of the Covenant was at Jericho, they won. When the Ark of the Covenant was at other places, they won. So they just simply assume that that's going to be true. And they fight the Philistines, and this time they lose 30,000 men. So they've lost over half of what we lost in Vietnam over a series of years in a matter of weeks. And so they have these bad memories about when things went badly, they went very, very badly for us. Um, and then they have uh, of compounding this fear that they have um, of, of being beaten by their enemies. Um, and uh, slip over to chapter 12 just for a minute, and you'll see exactly what has um, brought this fear to a head. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, this is when Saul's being confirmed, and Samuel says to him, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Amazon, or Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king will reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now there's another enemy on the horizon. He's on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, is besieging Jabesh Gilead, and uh, what are we going to do? Now, in the previous time, uh, Samuel had risen up as a judge, and following their, their 30,000-man loss, uh, Samuel came, he offered sacrifices, he prayed, and, and God was with Israel, and, and they devastated the Philistines. But with these bad memories, and then the next thing is that compounding this is... Um, there's a failure in the leadership of Israel. There's the corruption of the priesthood as seen in Eli's sons. Uh, the priesthood uh, had failed Israel. Samuel, who uh, was revered and trusted, was old. And he's no longer a long-term solution. And Samuel's sons were dishonest, taking bribes and per perverting justice. So there's a leadership va vacuum. Who, who, are, who do we got? Samuel's old. His sons are no good. The priesthood is, has failed us the last time. Who's going to help us as we face Nahash of the Ammonites? We need a king. We need a king. Because as they, they looked around, um, the nations around them had a different political system than waiting for God to raise up a judge to deliver them, they had a king, and he had a standing army, and he knew what to do. And so he went out and fought their battles. And so we need a king. But God, who knows their hearts, knows that their stated motivations are not the only motive for the request. The Israelites had not learned the real lesson of the book of Judges, Failures against enemies was because of sin, not political organization. And what were their underlying motives? In verse 7, we saw that they rejected God. They rejected the theocracy, God ruling in Israel. And in Israel, God was to reign, and it was his responsibility to protect the people. 
And their reaction of fear instead of faith was leading them to set aside God's order and timing. You know, uh, having a king wasn't necessarily wrong. God had promised Abraham, and in my Bible reading this morning, uh, the promise was repeated to Jacob, that in their lines there would be kings. Some of their descendants would be kings. And, and Jacob prophesied of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49 that the king would come from the, the tribe of Judah. And in Deuteronomy um, chapter 17, verses 14 and 17, uh, Moses says, when you're in the land, you're going to ask for a king like the nations around you, and here's how he should act. He shouldn't multiply horses. He shouldn't do, multiply wives. Here are some of the restrictions that need to be put on this king. So it wasn't that, that God didn't have a plan for a king. In fact, God had a king in preparation, David. But they want a king now. They are setting aside God's order because in a lack of faith. Uh, they're giving in to fear. And so they're doing away with God's order and they're, they're resisting God's timing. We want an answer now. We want something we can see and trust instead of God. The second motivation, I actually, down uh, in verse 20 of uh, chapter 7, or 8, I'm sorry, um, it says... Um, so that we may be like the nations that our king may judge us and go out and fight our battles. In one of my older Bibles, I said, what king could do a better God, a job than God? And if you go back to, to the book of Joshua again and again and again, he defeated all 30 kings because God was with him. He won this great victory because God was with him. They just didn't learn that lesson. It was their sin that caused them to fail, not um, God's provision. The second motivation, and you find this in, in uh, Judges chapter 1, was they were more interested in material success than spiritual responsibility. God had told Israel to kill or drive out all the Canaanites, but the first chapter of Judges shows us that when the tribes had the ability to drive out the enemy, you know, they weren't able at the beginning, but when Israel became strong, what did they do? Did they drive them out, kill them? No, they put them to forced labor. Let's get some economic value out of these people. Let's use them as slaves so that we will have a material advantage. Instead of obeying God, they chose to disobey for material gain. They wanted security without spiritual responsibility without obedience. J. Sidlow Baxter writes, the fact would seem to be that Israel had wearied of a theocratic form of government which made their well-being dependent on their right conduct. Perhaps they vaguely supposed that a government under a human king would relieve them somewhat of this responsibility inasmuch as their well-being would rest more on the character of the government and the qualities of the king himself. So they chose fear instead of faith and set aside God's order and God's timing. They chose material benefit instead of obedience and they reaped destruction. 
And those principles continue to today. In, in the rest of chapter 8, Samuel, God has Samuel warn them of what a king's going to do to them, the price of human kingship. The key words used six times is he will take. This king's not going to be a giver. This king's going to be a taker. And so the king would need an army, so a military draft would be established. A king needs servants, so people would be put into servitude. Your daughters are going to serve as his cooks and his bakers and his house cleaners. Uh, the king uh, will give land grants to his warriors and servants, leading to widespread land confiscation. You know, in Israel, God had given families the land. It was theirs in, in forever, and they would pass it on to their children. But now you're going to see land taken from families and transferred to someone who wasn't related to them at all. Part of it is going to be because of the next one. A king would need taxes to pay for all of the above. And so people unable to pay their taxes are going to have their land confiscated and be sold into servitude. And the result would be a loss of personal liberty. And, and Samuel lays this all out. And in verse... Um, 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. No, but there will be a king over us, so that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge and go out before us and fight our battles. We don't care. Many times in the future, they're going to rue this decision, but it's going to be too late. And so that brings us to Saul. Saul had a great beginning. First uh, Samuel uh, ten nine tells us uh, if you turn over there, chapter ten and uh, verse nine. Then it happened when he turned back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Uh, the first thing uh, after he's been anointed as king, before he's been announced to the nation, is God changed his heart. This doesn't mean that Saul became a, a believer. Uh, was converted, it says it means that the Spirit of God came upon Saul to equip him for the job of, of being king. And, and that equipping would, would be there um, to, to help him, to give him supernatural help. Um, but because Saul became proud and independent and rebelled against God, he lost the Spirit's power and then his kingdom, and then his life. But God put his spirit on, he changed him, he equipped him for the job. And then the second one you have is the popular acclaim, uh, chapter 10, verse 23. Um, so they ran and took him from there, he's hiding in the baggage, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upwards. There's that outward that man looks at. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom God has chosen? Surely there's no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. Samuel says, look at this guy. I mean, it, it's like having Colton. 
on, on, on your, you know, having a bunch of five-year-olds playing football, and I choose Colton. <laughs> okay, I choose Colton. Well, that's, but, but, and that's how it was. They looked at Saul, and they said, yeah, this is the guy. Popular acclaim. It, it was great. And then, look at verse 26. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. God gave him a group of men that committed to Saul, that were followers of Saul, that became his officers, that became his, his uh, inner circle. And God moved in their hearts. And then he gives him a tremendous victory over um, Nahash the Ammonite. And that's all of chapter 11. Saul calls for Israel to come. 300,000 men come. Uh, actually, 330,000. And they win a decisive victory. And so everybody's rejoicing. And, and when he was first announced, there were some men that, that mocked him. And now that there's been this great victory, some of the men said, where are those guys that mock Saul? Let's put them to death. And Saul, in a wonderful display of mercy, says, no man's going to die today because God gave a victory, a wonderful victory. And so you have this mercy of the king. What a wonderful start. And then it's followed by great failures. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, it probably should be two years over Israel. That's what the, the manuscripts actually say. It's not a statement of his total reign. It's, it's a statement. In his first year, he fought the Ammonites. Now he's in his second year, and uh, he's going to face a problem with the Philistines. Verse 2, Paul chose for him, Samuel chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. So he started uh, to put together this, this military draft, this, this standing army. He has 2,000 men that are there with him. Jonathan has another 1,000 men elsewhere. And the Philistines hear this. Israel has a king. He's building a standing army. So they come up with a massive force. And so you read in verse 5, now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs in cellars and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Um, but as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people were following him, trembling. All of a sudden, reality strikes. <laughs> 30,000 chariots, this huge army. And people start leaving. They're crossing the Jordan. They're headed out of the entire area, get as far away as possible. In fact, we're going to find that Saul's army, he had sent the 300,000 back to their homes, and he's going to call them. Of his 3,000 men, there's only 600 left. 600 left. And he's facing this huge army. 
Samuel had told him back in chapter 10, verse 8, um, wait seven days and I will come. And so Saul's waiting for Samuel to come. Verse 8, now he waited seven days according to the point in time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. The people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And, and we find Saul doing the same thing that Israel did. Out of fear. I mean, Gideon had half the men Saul had. He had 300. Because God liked to use victories over the enemies to display to Israel and to the nations around that the God of Israel was the one who was the power in Israel. And so he told Gideon, too many men, send everybody who's afraid home. And so a bunch left. He said, still too many men. And he narrowed it down to 300. And he's narrowing it down to 600. There's a test of faith here for Saul. And Saul, his faith is in men. And out of fear, he says, I've got to do something to, to rally the troops. I've got to do something to, to make sure we can do this. And just like before, they went and grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and brought it in, uh, thinking that would do it. He says, well, I'll offer the sacrifices. God had made a decision that no king would be a priest. Priests were here kings were here. The only king priest in, in Israel ever was to be the Lord Jesus. Later in time, a, a king will come in to offer incense on the altar and God will smite him with leprosy to reinforce that. And once again, he sets aside God's order. He takes something on that's not his to take out of fear instead of faith. And he doesn't trust God's timing Samuel said, I'll be there. He's late. God's using that to test Saul's heart. And he's finding what's in Saul's heart. And so when Samuel comes, Samuel rebukes him. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He didn't lose his kingship. He lost his dynasty. Jonathan wouldn't sit on the throne following him. But he's still king. And God's going to test his heart again over in chapter 15. There's a lot of things that happen. God gives victory over, over the, the Philistines. Saul again shows his rashness. He takes credit for something that he didn't do. He makes a, a, a rash oath. Um, but God nonetheless uh, gives victory through him. In chapter 15, verse 1, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming out of Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. When Israel traveled in the wilderness, Amalek is, is more of a, a, a tribal group that moves around. Um, and they would pick off the stragglers that were in the march. So those that were faint, those that got tired and sat down to rest for a while, the, the Amalek, Am, Amalekites would whip in and kill them or take them as, as slaves. They fought one time against uh, Israel when they thought they were strong enough to take them on. If you remember the story, uh, Joshua fought them and, and, and uh, uh, Moses sat on the hill with the rod of God and when his hands were up, Israel won. When his hands came down, Israel lost. And so Aaron and Hur uh, held his arms up so that Israel won. And God said to Moses, there will be, because of Amalek, doing this, attacking the, the weak and the poor and the faint and, and doing this, there will be war forever. And later he says, I want you to wipe them out. And so Samuel comes, he says, listen, God made this promise a long time ago, 400 and some years ago, and now the time, and God has chosen you to fulfill his judgment on this people that had, had so attacked the people of God. And so Saul heads off, and you may remember the story. Uh, verse 4, Saul summoned the men, the people, and numbered them, 200,000 soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. And he came to where, where the encampment of Amalek was and set an ambush in the, in the valley. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king, and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the rams and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came the same as saying, I regret I have made Saul king for he's turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul has come to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned proceeded down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the cattle which I hear? Saul said, He blames the people. They had brought them from the Amalekites, for the people shared the, spared the best of the sheep and oxen, sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And so we have Saul. He chose material benefits over obedience. The best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, Agag, a trophy to 
to his great battle, put up a monument to himself, but he didn't obey. Lord Jesus says, those that love me, obey my commandments. If you don't obey his commandments, what's it say? And God has tested Saul's heart. And Saul has failed twice. And God judges him. Did you catch that Saul's failures were mere images of the wrong motives of Israel? One of the lessons of the book of Judges is that the spiritual climate of God's people is reflected in their leaders. As Israel's spiritual climate goes down, you end up with Samson. The main statement of of the book of Judges is, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And twice those exact words I've used of, of Samuel or Samson when he says, uh, get that woman for me. She's right in my eyes. Sometimes we say, well, the responsibility is the leaders. But if the body does not live up to spiritual responsibility, they will not produce leaders much above their own spiritual temperature. I don't know how the Lord couldn't come sometime soon, but if the Lord doesn't, the leaders of this place will be determined by the spiritual vitality of this body. Every one of us has a responsibility. And it's out of this body, God raises up leaders. And so there's a real warning in Israel and Saul that the leader Israel could produce and love was just like them. And David's going to be different. And so we're going to look at why David. What was different about David? Well, we know he was a man after his own heart. How did he become a man after God's own heart? How did he become that kind of man? We're not told specifically, but there are some indications. The first is solitude, spending time alone with God. Psalm 46.10, which is not one of David's, says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still means to cease striving. Um, literally, it means um, relax in confidence. It reflects this idea of, uh, of learning who God is. Psalm 39.7, uh, David reflected this idea when he said, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. David, out in the field with the sheep, discovered a personal God. I don't, uh, there's debate over when Psalm 8 was written. But Psalm 8 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And, and he understood God was the creator. He understood the power of God. You go through Psalm 1, 
39, and he talks about the the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God. And these were things David learned out there in the solitude, thinking about God, communing with God, praying to God, letting God speak to him uh, through whatever resource he had in the word of God and through nature and through other things. When my daughter went to college, they offered uh, the freshman could go to this camp and, uh, uh, and could get to know other freshmen if they wanted to, and I thought that'd be a good idea. And so she went, and, and we got a call from her, and she said, they're taking away our cell phones for the whole week, so I'm to call you to tell you don't be worried if you can't get a hold of me. And at the end of the week, I, I said, what was one of the most interesting things you did? She said, there came a day when they fed us breakfast, and then they said, hit the restrooms, and we came back, and they gave us a little sack lunch, and they took us out along the trail, and they dropped every one of us off with a Bible and a pen and a notebook and said, we'll be back about 4 o'clock to pick you up. Six out the hours out there by yourself with your Bible, your notebook, and your pen. And they did that. They did that camp not only just for the freshmen, but for anybody who later was involved in leadership, any leadership at the school. And, and so I, I was real pleased that for the next three years, she was at that camp, and she had that experience. Have you ever spent time alone with God? We live in a deafening world. And Elijah learned on Mount Horeb that God speaks with a still, small voice. Do you ever take time and just be alone with God? Let God speak to you. Meditate on his word. Spend some time in prayer with him. David did that. <laughs> Wasn't really his choice. He was the youngest. He got stuck with the job. Even when he was the harpist for, for Saul, it, when, when he wasn't with Saul, he went back to the sheep out in there again. But God used that time in his life. And we need quiet time with God. In the hubbub of the world, you'll miss God's voice if you don't take time. Integrity. God specifically mentions David's integrity of heart in 1 Kings 9.4. In Psalm 78, 72, written by Asaph, he says of David, so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. In several of his own psalms, David refers to the importance in his life that integrity had. What is integrity? It's trustworthiness to responsibility marked by dependability and honesty. Someone said, it's who you are when nobody sees you. Someone else said, it's faithful in little things. You know, David, and I don't want to steal too much from Tony, but David told, told Saul, I was out there with the sheep, and a lion and a bear came along. Lord Jesus talked about the difference between a shepherd and a hireling. Hireling flees. The shepherd is willing to give his life for the sheep. Nobody's out there seeing what's going to happen. 
you can rationalize it. You can say, well, dad would rather have me come back than all the sheep. You can say, well, you know, that lion's already got a hold of him. He's probably toast anyway. So he's no good to us. Or he could say, well, he's wounded. I'm going to have to spend all kinds of extra time helping that sheep, carrying that sheep, and it'll keep me from being able to give all the rest of the sheep the time they need. Lots of things you can rationalize. But the question is, are you faithful to the responsibilities you have? David, in a number of places you'll find, he talks about other people, and then he says, as for me, and he'll talk about integrity. Integrity is a choice. I have responsibilities in trustworthiness, in faithfulness. I'm going to meet those responsibilities. I'm going to be dependable. I'm going to be honest. Faith. I don't doubt that David faced that lion and that bear praying all the way. But in solitude, he had learned who God was and that he, God, was able and willing to help those who diligently seek him. David's psalms are filled with statements of faith in his God. Psalm 61, 2 and 3, from the ends of the earth I will call to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me. Psalm 55, 16, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. David had a confident trust in God's ability and care. And you know what? Faith grows by experiencing trusting God. Lots of people say, well, I want to fight a Goliath. You're not ready to fight a Goliath until you've fought a lion and a bear and seen God do it. Then God can use you. Da Sorry, Tony. Um, David, was, David was confronted. I mean, when he speaks, who is this guy to say those things about this God that I love? He knew this God. He had met this God in solitude. He trusted this God. He was going to be obedient to the responsibilities that he felt towards God and the things that God had given him to do. And then lastly, um, David gives God the glory. In Jeremiah 9.24, God says, Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justness, and righteousness on earth, Listen to these words. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Before Saul, David declared, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David's psalms are filled with expressions of giving God the glory. One of my favorites is in Psalm 3.3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Everything I got came from you, God. <laughs> and everything that's really valuable is you, God. 
And he gives God the glory. He gives God the credit. And we'll discover other things as we go through the life of David. But here's this young man. And you know the thing that struck me as I went through this? There's not a single one in this room that can't go after those four things that are important to God. To make a decision. I'm going to spend time alone with God. To say I'm going to um, approach life with integrity. I'm going to be faithful in all the responsibilities God gives me. I'm going to, by faith, look to God for what I need to do those responsibilities. And when it happens, I'm going to give him the credit for what he's done in my life. Not a single, not from the youngest one here to the oldest one here. It's not out of reach of anybody but we make choices. And we'll go out this week and we'll make choices. And we'll have a heart after God's or like Saul. And God puts two very distinct patterns, two very distinct choices, two very distinct destinies before us. And he says, come to me, <laughs> ye who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you want relationship with us. You want to help us in the responsibilities of our life. You want to use us to your glory and our good. Lord, help us to have hearts that say, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want you to work in my life. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.